right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. You don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm your host, Derek Johnson. Along with me is Kulsi Debutar. We're going to have a loaded show today that includes Brian Haney joining us, the voice of the Jayhawks, in about 35 minutes from right now. We'll also talk with Tim Scarborough, he's going to be on the broadcast of the basketball tournament, which is going on over the course of this weekend. Actually started earlier today. Hunter Mickelson just played for Team Arkansas. He's one of a a handful of former Jayhawks who is appearing in it. There is no Kansas team, unfortunately. I wish there were. He had seven points, two rebounds, a block in a game, and Team Arkansas got the win. So he's moving on there. We'll talk with Tim Scarborough about the TBT. And then Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back, going to join us at 440 here. Damian Lillard is going to be making a trade announcement at some point or or some sort of announcement. It sounds like they had a press conference, and by all accounts, it seems like there's multiple different sources saying that he is going to request a trade. Damian Lillard, one of the best players in the NBA, he's one of the top 10 players. He is a guy that you move mountains to go try to trade for, and the fact that he is on the trade block is very interesting. Obviously, the NBA Finals going on. This is the type of guy that if you make the right trade for on the right team, your team could be in the NBA Finals next year. 100%. So, latest word is that practice is running long. So, his press conference, which was, just, which was uh, supposed to start right after Team USA practice ended, is not started yet. So, uh, hopefully, we get some more news uh, while we're on air that we'll be able to uh, share with you guys. I think that any of the teams that are on the short list, the short list right now looks like we got the Sixers, we got the Knicks, Lakers are an outside chance, and then some people are throwing the heat around in there, but I really think people are talking about the Sixers, talking about the Knicks. I think both of those teams, especially the Sixers, can make very convincing trade packages uh, to Portland, so I'm very excited to see how this sort of pans out. Now, to be honest with you, I would love for Dame to stay in Portland, be their you know lifetime hero break all of Clyde Drexler's, you know, records there. But in the modern NBA, uh, that just doesn't get to happen as much anymore. People are judged by the rings that they win uh, as opposed to the kind of pure performances they put up. That playoff performance he put up uh, earlier this year is maybe the greatest performance I've ever seen in a loss in my lifetime. I said this back when I think that happened or maybe it was when the Trailblazers lost. I hate that we've gotten to this point, and, and this is what you're talking about with this like ring culture, where as soon as a player plays well but they lose, whether it's in the first round, second round, final, we see it with Giannis, and we're not seeing it now because they've they've won the last two games, but when they got down 2-0, everyone's just like, get Giannis help. And it's this idea of like, if you're not winning a title, we need you to go team up with somebody else. And everybody complains about the super teams, but then they want that to happen. You got to pick one. Yeah. And I would rather it be more of the mid 2000s, 2010s era where you had maybe you had two teams 
or, or two stars team up. But you weren't led by just what team is going to win the offseason. Whatever team wins the offseason and cashes their chips in to bring three stars together is going to win the title. And this year we haven't had that um, partially because of maybe some injuries going on. But otherwise, if we would have had Lakers, Nets in the finals, that would have been just that exactly. So I, I don't love the fact that he is going to end up requesting a trade, but I get it. And of the teams reported, the Lakers one makes me laugh just because they're just probably in on the odds because it's the Lakers, and you know you're going to see Lakers fans everywhere saying, well, let's go get him. Let's give him Kyle Kuzma. And it's like, you, Kyle Kuzma is not going to get Damian Lillard. All these other teams are going to have way better packages. The Sixers one is super interesting. You look at the local tie with Joel Embiid being there. You pair Damian Lillard with Joel Embiid, that is one of the most fun teams in the NBA. I think that team is fantastic. Um, and I don't think – the Sixers are obviously giving up uh, a lot in this sort of trade. A lot of the trades are saying, well, you uh, ship Simmons, you ship uh, Matisse Thibel, you maybe ship Tyrese Maxey, and then maybe like a pick or uh, you take away one of those players and throw in two more picks. Lots of lots of discussion around those. I think Tybel's a, a really, really good uh, defensive player and I think could pan out as an offensive player maybe in a couple years. So that could be a, a, a big get for Portland if they feel like they can't convince Damian Lillard to stay. There's sort of this mentality I think some people have, like, well, just don't trade him. He has four years left on his contract. Why are you trading a guy who has four years left on his contract? Well, the fact is, you know, sort of what happened in Houston with Harden, if Lillard shows up 15 pounds overweight and fighting with people at practice, you're going to trade him. So you might as well trade him now when you could get Simmons, who, yes, he can't shoot. He doesn't finish as well as he used to, but he's still a plus defender, and he still passes the ball pretty well. And then you could get a Tybal who's like a plus plus defender and could pan out offensively. And I think that's I think that would be a great return along with some picks uh, for a guy who, if you force him to stay, might not be happy and might cause uh, you a whole lot of grief. And then you'll get a worse package for him in the end. I feel like this is going to end up with him going to the Heat. I know that's not the favorite. <laughs> I know there was the report from uh, Quentin Mayo, who is like a Wizards insider that. The New York Knicks and the Philadelphia 76ers are the favorites there. But every time there's like a star, it seems like the Miami Heat just kind of creep up and, hey, we'll nab you out of the blue. And they have the trade pieces to do it. I think no matter what happens here, though, like no matter which of these destinations he goes to, it is going to have a league-altering effect in terms of not just getting rid of one of the kind of middle-tier teams in the West, but also it could create a title contender out of nowhere. Yeah, uh, quick check. Is Oladipo still on the Heat? Yes, but okay. I think he might be a free agent. Okay, okay. I wonder how much money he's going to get, but that, that was just a thought I had because they traded for him, I think, under the impression that he might be that thing to carry them over the edge after they lost to the Lakers in yeah. the last finals, and instead he got injured. I don't think played very well in the little bit of time he did play. Uh, Victor Oladipo, I think – one of my biggest disappointments from when he seemed to be the next big thing a couple years ago. Yeah, some injuries definitely hurt him. That, that'd be very interesting if they went out and got him. They basically just said, well, Oladipo, you didn't work out. You just uh, go sign somewhere else. <laughs> we got a better one with Damian Lillard anyway. You trade Tyler Hero and a bunch of first-round picks. I don't know what else you'd have to give up, Duncan Robinson or – you might have player. to do Oladipo to make salary. Hey, Precious Achua was on the Nigerian national team. He had the big block on Kevin Durant. They right. upset Team USA. Maybe Precious Achua, maybe his value is at an all-time high. <laughs> Speaking of Team USA, which is where Damian Lillard would have his little press conference fun from, which 
Still haven't really heard anything there. Team USA is is kind of in trouble. Not just from the standpoint of, oh, they lost those two games with Australia and Nigeria, but also Team USA is having some COVID issues. Bradley Beal sent home. Kevin Love sent home. And these are the players they are adding. No, they're not going to add Trey Young, who's available, who I'm not a big Trey Young guy just from terms of watching him, but I can understand. Trey Young is a very good basketball player. And when you look at some of the issues Team USA is having, they just have a bunch of guys who are just trying to score. They don't really have a facilitator. Well, Trey Young averages double-digit assists. Why don't you add him? Nah, how about this? How about they add JaVale McGee and Keldon Johnson? Because that is what they did. And if you don't really know who Keldon Johnson is, there's a reason why. He's a fine young player for the San Antonio Spurs. He's not a star. JaVale McGee, he is a league average backup center. I mean, this is crazy to me. I mean, I joked around like at the NBA Finals. What if you just added the third or fourth best player on every NBA roster? Would Team USA still win the Olympics? This is going above and beyond that. This is like, hey, let's add the sixth or seventh best player on marginal teams. Or I guess JaVale McGee was on the Nuggets. But let's add the sixth best player on a non-playoff team. And let's see what that does for Team USA. So, uh, because I was curious, uh, I wanted to figure out who the worst player on that infamous <laughs> uh, 2004 mm. uh, U.S. men's basketball well, who team. Who the best players, first of all? The best player was Allen Iverson. Allen okay, Iverson I mean, was that's the a lead very scorer. Good best, but yeah. uh, Tim Duncan was the lead rebounder. Okay. And um, in case you were wondering what kind of ball facilitation problems that team was having, the best, the assist leader was a uh, Stephen Marbury with ah. a three and a half assists a game. Okay. So uh, really, really solid uh, ball movement we had on this. The worst player on this team was Carlos Boozer, who was like legit. But he was like at just the time. out of college, wasn't he? Uh, I think he might have been. Yeah, one of the youngest mm-hmm. guys on that team. He was a. Uh, 22 years old, but that team also had uh, the trio of Mello, Wade, and Braun, but, but they didn't get like out. any yeah. playing time because Larry Brown hates young players. <laughs> um, so I think that this is worse, right? I think that JaVale McGee is a worse player than Carlos Boozer. Oh, yeah, 100%. So, so this is actually the worst player who's played on a U.S. men's basketball roster since 1992. Yeah, and it's not like a – like, I don't mean to slight JaVale McGee. Like, congratulations, bud. And, like, you've had a – I mean, by all accounts, you've had a great career. You've made millions of dollars playing basketball. Yeah. You've been a solid backup center for a long time. Like, that. that's awesome. But to this level, it's a higher bar when you're talking Team USA basketball. This is supposed to be the best of the best. And never has JaVale McGee been one of the best of the best. Yeah, never. Um, I, I I don't think he's received a single All-Star no, in his entire career. That's crazy. Absolutely insane. You know who the second worst player on this team was? Richard Jefferson. Also like a legit player <laughs> who's just way better than JaVale McGee ever has been. <laughs> I Yeah, and I don't get either of them. Like even the Kelton Johnson one, I still don't get. No, I don't get it all. I mean, Greg Popovich is the head coach, so I guess he has ties with Keldon Johnson. Maybe he, he knows something that Keldon can bring to the table that they're currently missing with the team. I kind of think, like, I'm getting to a point where I am starting to panic about Team USA. Like, if you told me Team USA or the field for the gold medal, I think right now I'm actually taking the field. Is okay. That, is that crazy? Who's Should your I be favorite in the that? field? Is it Australia? It might be. I mean, Australia waxed Nigeria after... Obviously, Nigeria beat Team USA. Australia, Australia looks Australia super won. legit. Australia, yes. Australia super looks legit. very, very good. It's tough, though, because and then I start thinking about it more, and I'm like, am I really going to pick Joe Ingles to beat Kevin Durant again? 
It's not just Joe Ingles. Patty Mills is on that team, which, by the way, it sucks Again, that Patty I, Mills is on that team because he's a very good point guard. He, is, he would be great if he was an American. Am I picking Patty Mills and Joe Ingles over Damian Lillard and Kevin Durant? Yeah, I Patty, shouldn't. Patty but Mills like, might be a better passer than Damian Lillard, it looks like. It's just, yeah, it is all about a fit thing, and it's a reminder that it is a team sport. You know, only one guy can have the ball in his hands at all time, and if you have five scores on the court, what else are you doing? Are you there? Are you there? Like, if you had Team USA or the field? Um, I think I'm still picking Team USA. Okay. Uh, I think when it comes down to it, yes, it's Olympic basketball is not as ISO-focused as um, the NBA, but, you know, when people always talk about, like, oh, if you have a one-on-one matchup, who are you picking to score the ball? And the answer is <laughs> Kevin Durant, like, 90% of the time. Yeah, that's that's why, right? Because he's the best at, at putting the ball in the basket. And there's no one on any other team in the entire world who's better than Kevin Durant at putting the ball in the basket. Maybe we should just switch focus. Let's just say, yeah, we don't care about the five-on-five. We're just going to switch focus because I think they're doing three-on-three this year. You're right, but I think we're sending college kids to that. Are we? we? Uh, let's forget that. Let's just say we're, <laughs> we are We don't care about the five-on-five. That way, if we lose, we, we get rid of the emotional burden uh-huh, of feeling uh-huh. like we had the high expectations, and we put all our star players into the three-on-three. I think that would be hilarious. You go, what would the three-on-three even be? I mean, you could put together a really good three-on-three. Kevin Durant would have to be on the team. Yeah. Because the thing with three-on-three is you need players who are versatile. Yeah. Would Draymond Green be on the team, or is the lack of shooting? You know what? I think that you, if you wanted to put like a post-scorer in there, you could. I think post-scoring is a lot more effective in a three-on-three yeah. match. than space. A, yeah. So if you want to – if you put – um. Oh, geez. Who's the best American post scorer right now? That's rough. A That's lot of the, the good problem, centers are all, foreign. Yeah, Nicole Drummond? Is, is he not just is he just not? But if good you're going enough? with Drummond, are you better off just playing Kevin Durant at the center? Yeah, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> maybe just, Kevin Durant just is just, your post. There's just presence, not right? enough good American centers right We're probably now. Probably missing somebody, but yeah. I mean, but I think if you go with the three on three team of like Kevin Durant. Hmm. You you want to say LeBron, but obviously he's he's Seems like he's retired from international basketball. Yeah, so and then like Steph and Lillard. It do, it doesn't it doesn't. Yeah, you yeah. could do that. You just Steph, put the two Lillard best guards and, and then Kevin Durant. Yeah, I mean that team is blowing everybody out in three, oh, three games. Unbeatable, especially because again, yeah. the most <laughs> the nations aren't sending their best players to play three, <laughs> three <laughs> no. basketball, so we <laughs> just win every no, game. No, to like that point, you 50. know what's funny? Like, do you know who Robbie Hummel is? No, I have no so idea. So Robbie, and this actually it makes this even better than if you have no idea who he is. Robbie Hummel was like a really good college player. Mm. Played at Purdue for like six years. He had a couple like season-ending injuries, so he got extra years. Gotcha. Torched Kansas in the second round of the twenty, I think, twelve NCAA tournament. Um, ended up being like a second-round pick for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Had a cup of coffee, a couple years in the NBA, and he ended up representing Team USA in like the three-on-three at the. I guess they have like the three-on-three World Basketball Championships. I don't know what year this was. It was like 2016, 2018, something like that. And I think he won gold. So if that is the bar, and again, Robbie Hummel, by standards of like the regular person, fantastic basketball player, but by standards of like the NBA player or like the international basketball star, he's lower on the totem. Yeah. So if you send out that team of Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and Damian Lillard, you're just absolutely thumping everybody. All right. He is Cole Cedabutar. I'm Derek Johnson. Brian Haney going to join us in about 20 minutes. Right here on RCST on FM 1017, 1320, KLWN, depending on it.
there's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash, they are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh man, where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry, unlimited use of exclusive app lane, unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them, unlimited guest service and most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush and spot free rinse, and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. That like three on three basketball was going to be in the Olympics. I'm like, oh, we could dominate that. But you know, three on three basketball, I guess, is a very considered a very separate event from five on five basketball, which is ridiculous. It's the same sport. Um, but we didn't qualify for the Olympics. We lost to the Netherlands, like got embarrassed which by the I, Netherlands. I don't think I can name a Dutch basketball player outside of Tristan and Aruna who was here last year at KU. Yeah, I have no idea who was on that, who was on the Netherlands team, but uh. Robbie Hummel, who you mentioned right before the break, was on this uh, American team that failed to qualify, along oh, with uh, Dominique Jones, Kareem Maddox, and Joey King. None of these guys ever played a single game in the NBA, uh, these uh, three. I believe Hummel did. but um, I thought Jones was like a first-round pick for the Mavericks. He might have. I'm I'm just, I'm just quoting NBC Sports. So, oh, really? Uh, they, okay. They might be, they might, uh, be incorrect. But, you know, uh, our women made it, so that's good that our women made the three-on-three, three, but it's, like, crazy that we somehow lost. Anytime a country doesn't qualify for the Olympics in a sport they invented, they should lose the rights <laughs> to call it their sport. If if England ever failed to qualify for the Olympics in soccer, just stripped from them. Right. And you're not saying they have to win, but you got to at least qualify. You got to qualify. Right. Because I bet you there's some countries in there where you might not even know that's a real country that is participating in this. By the way, yeah, Dominic Jones played 80 games in the NBA. So I don't oh, know what, well, NBC what Sports, get, get, your, but get anyway, your stuff together. That's the point. Like, if we actually tried a three on three, you could send out an absolutely awesome team there. And it doesn't even to be that awesome. You can send guys out who've played multiple seasons in the NBA, mm -hmm. and they'll probably smoke these. Days. And that's why I want to be good at three on three. We've seen the five on five thing before. I want to be good at three on three. So I hope this is a lesson. What if we made a rule like, oh, NBA players under twenty four? Mm, so so okay. we don't we don't like you know uh, make the really advanced MVP level 28, right. 29 year olds do it. But I those mean, like the same guys who play the Rising Star game in yeah. the All Star weekend, you know, have them do it. That would be great. You could still come up with an awesome team. Yeah. Like, uh, just off the top of my head, Trey Young. Is Jason Tatum still under 24? Yes. Jason Tatum, Trey Young, and then some guy who's either four or five men. Yeah. I'm trying to think who's like a young, good big man. DeAndre Ayton, boom. Yeah. Oh, totally. That'd be. Uh, he Is he Bahamian, He's though? 22. Ah, uh, that's right. Yep. 
Damn. don't think he can play for Team okay, USA. So you can't have T- DeAndre Ayton. Uh, who's another good young uh, center? J- just Marvin Bagley, dude. Like, he's fine. Oh, we don't want Marvin Bagley. Jaron Jackson. There we go. Okay, Jaron Jackson class. Jr. I love, I yeah. love Triple and J. And that's man. versatile. Now you got three guys who can shoot threes as that's well. That's great. That's a great team. Okay, boom. And then you win every game 21-6 instead of losing 21-6 to the <laughs> Netherlands. Uh, did you see this video of, I, I think it's pronounced Zhang Zhu. It's a seven foot four, seven foot four, 14 year old girl from China. That's insane. And she is just, as you'd imagine, as a seven foot four, 14 year old, absolutely dominating in the Chinese nationals. She put up 42 points, 25 rebounds, six blocks. I'm honestly surprised it's not even more. But if you think about it, they're probably playing like eight minute quarters and she's probably sitting for half the time. Like, Listen, I'm, I hope she can, you know, stay healthy. It's yeah. really hard for people that tall yeah. to stay healthy. But it would be great to see her in the WNBA here in, like, you know, what, six, seven years? That's Absolutely. sort of her timeline. And I wonder if China will just become, like, a power in women's basketball. Um, I also wonder, like, how far off do you think we are from a center being eight foot tall in the NBA? I just don't think humans can get that big. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, if you look at the tallest centers that we've really had in the history of basketball, they really cap out at like seven six, right? You got uh, Minute Bowl, you got your Taco Falls, mm-hmm. you got your uh, Mark Eaton, Sean Bradley. Uh, a lot of these guys, um, they have some sort of like uh, growth disorder, and they and they still cap out at seven six, and then they still have heart problems by the time they're you know thirty, right? So I think if you get any taller than that, you'll start having heart problems so early you won't be able to play. I think that yeah. I remember uh, Kenny George, who I think he was actually the tall. He played for UNC Asheville. He got up. To, he was either seven seven or seven eight. Jeez. And gigantic human. There's a great highlight of Tyler Hansborough dunking on him, <laughs> but he couldn't play more than like 10, 15 minutes a game just from running up and down the court. And then I, I think eventually he had to get like one of his legs amputated because of just the blood flow. Yeah. Of going through your body, it's it's too difficult. So you're probably right. But that, that's absolutely incredible because you would think it's still 14 years old. She has room to grow. Although I believe biologically, and I'm, I'm probably the furthest person that should be qualified to speak on this, I believe girls grow sooner than boys do. Yeah, they don't start. They don't keep growing much after, like, I think 16 or 17 mm-hmm. in terms of height. I don't think they grow much further than that. That's pretty crazy. He's Cole C. Butar. I'm Derek Johnson. Mark Emmert had some words about NCAA and their control over things right now. He talked about the fact that he was proposing a smaller role for the NCAA to lead to more power for the conferences. I would imagine this means the conferences would come together and they would have some sort of ruling group, some sort of committee. Maybe they would hire like a commissioner similar to uh, what you have in basically every other sport. You're Roger Goodell of the College Football League. And I don't know what that would mean for some of the smaller leagues. Does that mean the group of five is kind of screwed here? Does that mean the Power Five conferences would just come together and basically have autonomy over everything and they would be the big fish and everybody else would suffer from that? I don't know. Um, But you do know if if Mark Emmert is bringing this up, the president of the NCAA, it's clearly something that the NCAA is talking about. It's clearly something that other commissioners, that other higher-ups, people of people of power in the NCAA have brought up because he is kind of the mouthpiece for all of those people. Currently, here are a list of things the NCAA does, and feel free to add anything if you think of anything. They monitor people for cheating in some form or fashion, whether that's paying players, whether that's schools cheating, whether that's the players cheating, whatever. Uh, that's one of them. They are saying if people are eligible or not 
whether it's transfers, whether it's freshmen with grades, whether it is back in line with the cheating stuff, which I would say that the first two things, even though they do them, they do poorly. Um, and the third thing they do is put on postseason tournaments, which those are done well, but I think could probably be done by other organizations as well. Am I missing anything? Do they control drug testing? Probably for the postseason tournaments, but I think for the in-season, that might be more of a conference thing. Interesting. Okay. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I feel like you can definitely strip out a lot of that and go mostly to them being the tournament organizers. I guess the problem with that from their perspective is that's giving away free money. Mm -hmm. Like they are a you know, billion-dollar organization because of all of the other stuff that they have their fingers in. If you, if they voluntarily cut themselves out of action, ah, that feels weird to me. I, I, I mean, obviously, it's the president, the the president of the NCAA talking about it, so he's being serious. You know, it's not some speculation from some reporter who heard from, uh, you know, a, a close source or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's the word from the head of the snake, right? Yeah. I, I, here, I'll just read exactly what he said. Here's the quotes. It forces us to think more about what constraints should be put in place of college athletes, and it should be the bare minimum, those that are essential at a national level, those that are essential for the continuation of sport and making it work well. It allows a complete rethink of a whole lot of policies. I think this is really, really proprietous movement to sit back and look a lot of the core assumptions and say, you know, if we were going to build college sports again, and in 2020, instead of 1920, what would that look like? What would we change? What would we expect or want to be different in the way we manage it? And this is good. This is the right time. So I think that's all That's all good and well. That's all factual. When the NCAA was first started, it was under Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s. Obviously, there's going to be things that it started on and the foundation was built on that are just not as prevalent anymore. Part of this, it sounds like it's, kind of reactionary for the NCAA. He's trying to look ahead, but this has been probably in the works for a while, or it should have been. Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic, she kind of tried to explain what he meant with those quotes. So I'm just going to I'm gonna read from her piece. Again, check out The Athletic. If uh, get a subscription, it's, it's well worth your time. The language here is markedly different from what Emmert has used over the past decade, but he's framing it in a way to sound proactive. In reality, this is reactive. The sentiment stems from concerns about legal exposure. He's trying to package that as something altruistic when it's been the opposite of how he's talked about the collegiate model for years. He's always supported rules, regulations, and guardrails until now. And the most hilarious part of what Emmert said here, to me, is the NCAA would have a smaller governing role. This is exactly what you talked about, to give more power to the conference. Keyword there being smaller, which means he wants the conferences to handle everything but the NCAA still gets paid. The NCAA still gets their bottom dollar. <laughs> what would be the point of even doing that? There would be no point in even doing that. That's like me telling you, like, hey, Cole, you want to host the show for me, but I still get paid? Thanks. If they take on the power, if the conferences take on the power, you ain't still getting your millions and millions of dollars for them doing all the work. Sorry, bud. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN's Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Voice of the Jayhawks, Brian Haney, joins us next. About 20 till the top of the hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson in with Cole C. DeButar today on RCST. Brian Haney, Voice of the Jayhawks, in studio with us. I see you, bro. You're the traveling man this week. You were in 
what, Denver earlier this yeah. week, then Dallas, just every city with a D apparently. So I guess we'll, we'll start, we'll go chronologically. Did you go to the Home Run Derby? Was it just the All-Star game? I did not. That's one mm-hmm. D I didn't get to do the Derby. But it started with the Hawks and Highways Tour. We were in Salina and Hayes, and I had a 24-hour window before I had to be in Dallas for Big 12 Football Media Days. And so I thought, well, man, I'm halfway there already. I had a buddy that lives out there, and he, he scooped me up, and we uh, made a day of it. So didn't go to the Derby, but I did get to go to the Fan Fest on Tuesday during the day and got to meet Dave Winfield there. I got to meet uh, Steve Garvey, Brett Saberhagen. So that was kind of fun. And, uh, and then, of course, the game that night was a blast. I'd been to the, the Royals hosting of the All-Star Game in 2012, and I'd been to Bush Stadium, I want to say three years before that, for the uh, Home Run Derby when the Cardinals hosted. But I'm one of those guys, if you've got a chance to make a memory, if you're somewhere or near somewhere and something big's going on, you got to go do it. So that's what we did on Monday and Tuesday. And, uh, and then, obviously, these last two days being in Dallas was a blast. It was unfortunate our team's plane couldn't take off yesterday, but I thought the guys really handled themselves well in adapting and making the most of a bad situation. And Coach Leipold continues to impress with every exchange he has. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the, the key word yesterday was consistency, and I've talked about this a lot on the show. Uh, that was just something that he brought up in, in different ways um, over the course of it. But I think that you're going to get a lot of that with the new staff in place. And he mentioned the different guys having different position coaches four times over or something like that. Um, I think that is going to be the biggest boon to this team. And I know you talked to a bunch of different pretty uh, pretty esteemed people, whether it was Bob Bowlesby or, or so forth. And, and everybody you talked to seemed to be really impressed with Lance Leipold. Yeah, no doubt. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, with, with some, they say, on paper, it has all the ingredients to work. Now we want to see it actually on the field, and I get that. But uh, I talked to other people like R.J. Young, and they, they didn't air that interview yet, but uh, he's a he's a big uh, announcer for Fox Sports that does a lot of their digital media content, and he was as bullish on Leipold as anybody I've talked to. He was talking about going to a bowl game in year one and, and rattling off nine wins in a season by year three. And uh, this is a national you know, guy for Fox Sports that was really high on the hire. So that was encouraging to hear. But I think uh, whether it was Bruce Feldman or Max Olson from The Athletic or uh, we talked with a couple of the ESPN guys, including Anish Shroff, who uh, actually called one of Leipold's bowl games when he was with Buffalo, uh, they all just talked about how whether it's building a program, whether it's talent evaluation, seeing something that other coaches don't see, whether it's just building it the right way, slow and steady wins the race. This guy has that pedigree. And when you think about what has been tried and what has not worked in the last 13 years, I kind of like this approach. I mean, he's all substance. He's all hard work. There's not flash or over-promising, under-delivering. It's, we're going to turn the corner at some point. This is the plan on how we're going to do it. Can't guarantee it's going to happen right away, but we believe if we have that continuity that you spoke to, same position coaches, the, the same message, the same scheme, whatever, and, and we are able to get our players in this system and do that, then they have a chance to, to build something that gets Kansas back to a much more competitive state each and every fall and eventually competing for bowl games and that kind of thing. You know, it's obviously a, a tough time in the college football realm right now when you are labeled toward the bottom of the food chain and now these teams at the top can poach your best players every year with no sitting out and all that. And that is a little scary, you know, when you see three Kansas players go to SEC schools. But I think as Coach Leipold really builds his culture – 
and gets his guys for his system, there'll be more investments emotionally, everything, in, in what he's building with the, the guys that are coming in and the guys that he's already won over. I mean, really, if you think about the retention rate of the number of players he held on to versus the ones he lost, it's pretty astounding, actually. Now, it hurts because three of the guys we lost were some of our best players, but um, I think all things considered, to have a coaching change happen at the juncture at which it did and then to have all these crazy new rules in college football, the job he did of holding the ground and, and holding on to what we had I, I think is pretty impressive. And as he starts to get his own guys in there and they have that type of consistent messaging, continuity in coaching in terms of the players and who they're working with, with their position groups and all that, I think you're going to see Kansas weather that storm of these new college football rules, hang on to guys, build something. And that genuinely seemed to be the consensus from most people we talked to yesterday. Yeah, I, I think when you have all the Buffalo kids come over to, and you see even players who didn't come over with him congratulating him on moving on or, or thanking him for everything they did for him, I think that just shows what kind of character you get with him and what type of, type of guy that – in that era where that is so important, the transfer portal, I mean, first of all, Kansas makes the Scott Aligo hire, which I think that's going to be great with what he did at Michigan State for bringing in transfers. But given the personality there and how much he seems to care and, and work with these kids, I don't think you are going to lose a lot of those guys. And I think a perfect example of that was Kenny Logan, a guy who stuck around and he was able to be a part of the media day. And he seems to be kind of the leader on the defense, so to speak. Uh, if you could, do you have any stories or, or Kind of talk on how good Kwame Lasseter and, and Kenny Logan could be for this program this next year. Yeah, well, I, mm -hmm. I think Kwame's such a great story. I mean, this mm -hmm. is a kid that was 157 pounds soaking wet, uh, you know, showing up on campus. And, and even less than that as a high school senior, I think he told me he was like 140-something <laughs> as a high school senior. And, you know, your dad plays in the NFL and, and your dad has this big name. But doesn't matter who dad is if, if you haven't built your body and you haven't been noticed – to the degree that, that a lot of guys you know, want to be at that stage in their lives. And so he came here as a walk-on. People forget that. I mean, this is a guy that has a chance to be up for all-conference consideration, and he came here as a walk-on. People just assume because his dad was a pro with the Arizona Cardinals. And to this day, I believe it's one of 16 players. It might be 14. You could look it up. But the NFL record for most interceptions in a game and for those that don't know, he was a defensive back. I'm not talking interceptions thrown. I'm talking interceptions picked yeah. off. One record you want, the other you don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's one of like 14 or 16 guys that still has that record. He had four in a single game. Uh, and so I think a lot of people just assume that, oh, well, you know, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He's probably some big-time prospect. Actually, he was a walk-on. And everything he's built himself into to now be one of the most trusted pass catchers. And obviously, we got to figure out who the quarterback's going to be. But uh, he's built his body. He's, he's improved his route running. He's improved his hands. He's done so you know, wanting to build on the legacy that his late great father you know, carved out. And his brothers are, are in line with that as well, wanting to make dad proud as he looks down on them from heaven. And, and so it's just a beautiful story. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, you know, depending on what the offense ends up looking like and, and no matter who's back there at quarterback, uh, he's going to be probably the most targeted and trusted guy just based on his proven track record, his ability to get open and, and hang on to the ball when it's thrown his way. You know, with, with Kenny Logan, he's an interesting story because his brother was an outstanding talent at Florida and played under Urban Meyer down there as a kick returner that, that was one of the best during their heyday and, uh, you know, had a cup of coffee at the NFL level. But the point is, like, he comes from great stock and has always had similar aspirations, 
but uh, you know, was was a little bit overlooked in a very competitive high school football scene down there in Florida, and ultimately has to come to the Midwest to play for a major conference team. Probably could have gone some other places when others were looking to do that, but he stayed true to the team that believed in him when some of those other schools were looking past him. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think when he does that, and I'll never forget, he put out a tweet, you know, early when all this coaching change stuff was going on, and, he, and Lance Leipold was just coming in, and people were wondering. Who's going to leave? Who's going to stay? He put out a tweet that basically said, I'm all in. Uh, and, and, you know, that I think had a lot of guys in that huddle, a lot of guys in that locker room and his position group think, oh, well, if Kenny's bought in, I am too. That's the type of influence I think he has with his teammates. And so excited to see him take that next step. We clearly saw it last year, um, you know, in his development as a ball hawking secondary member. And, and I think as, as one of the uh, – reporters talked about yesterday Dave Archer who has a serious XM show nationally he said this guy could play in the secondary for anybody in the conference and and truly has a chance to be elite this season so let's hope that's in the cards for him we may have lost a lot up front defensively uh, but but I like the guys we've brought in and I love him anchoring the back end for sure we're talking with Brian Haney here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk uh, also in a couple weeks actually what three weeks from yesterday is the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic and then we got three weeks from today is the Rock Chalk Round Bowl Classic. Yes. I believe I got that right. Yes. Well done. That's coming up. I, I don't think I realized how quickly it was coming up. Well, we haven't, snuck up. we haven't put ads on the air. We haven't sold tickets yet. It's all very strategic because, obviously, we have to be super careful. You know, I, I think as much as we all want to feel like we're inching closer and closer to normalcy by the day, the truth of the matter is, in terms of getting through the pandemic, there's still a ways to go. And uh, there's a lot of unpredictable factors out there. And so while we're full speed ahead and can't wait for the events on the 5th and the 6th, uh, you know, we're going to take a lot of necessary precautions because some of the attendees that night are our beneficiary children that are immunocompromised. And so we're going to talk on Monday. Uh, you'll, you'll have an official announcement on how we plan to proceed uh, but the game is going to have all the same excitement it's always had. We just have to be a little more careful because this is about the kids. It's always been about the kids, whether it's raising money for the beneficiary children each year or putting on a show for the other kids that show up. Uh, it, the focus has always been on, on the kids. And so when we make that decision, which is going to happen over the weekend and, and put out an announcement on Monday on exactly what the capacity will be, exactly how we're going to do ticket sales, it's all with the best interest, the health and well-being of the kids first and foremost in mind. Second, Secondarily, we want to protect the players. There will be some insulation between the benches and where the first row of fans begins. And then we want to protect each other. You know, and I know some folks you know, may find that disappointing or you, know, you want to be back to full capacity with no restrictions. But we just got to be sensible right now with, with some unpredictable things going on, including the, the Delta variant. So um, tune in on Monday. We'll have more for you then. But uh, in terms of the momentum of the game and how things are going, I mean, we're fired up. You know, Devontae and Sphere coming back. Ben McLemore's coming back. We should have right around 30 guys, uh, players and coaches combined for um, Thursday night. And then we'll have 30 lanes of bowling the next night at Royal Crest. And the Round Bowl Classic, by the way, is presented by Johnny's Tavern. Really want to thank them for their partnership. And They're going to have food on each lane for the bowlers. And the way we'll do it is, you know, you have 30 celebrities out there. And uh, you get to bowl one game with, with one celebrity, and then whoever your lane partner is, because, you know, there's like one ball. Mm. I'm not a bowler. I don't know what they call that. <laughs> that ball unit that spits the balls yeah, out. Yeah, I had no idea. You know, idea, the shoot that comes up. I, I should know this terminology before the date of the event. I but took a bowling class at KU. I, I did, too. I don't too. even think they ever taught me that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what they call that. It's like teach me scoring it's, it's, and stuff. I remember the final exam was how you score a 
Well, scorecard. Whatever the ball return mechanism yeah, yeah, is yeah. called, somebody call in and help me with this. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're two teams on one lane, right? So at the end of the first game, you'll switch celebrities. So, you know, if you got Devontae here and Billy Thomas there, it's one game with Devontae, and then you get to have an hour talking with Billy. And so I think that's kind of cool. It would be similar to if we had our normal golf tournament, playing nine holes with one guy and then switching partners at the turn. I think that will give a, a lot of uh, you know, fans a chance to experience even more. And then what's cool is if you sign up for the VIP package, you get to be involved in this uh, open bar, open menu, 8 to 9 p.m. VIP party at Wayne and Larry's after the bowling is done. And that's where you'll meet everybody. So, so you know, in lieu of what would be normally autograph signings and photos and all that on Thursday night at the basketball game. Instead, the bowling event is more of the interactive experience because if you think about it, Derek, I mean, it's just it's a mad rush for those autographs. It's, it's a 1,000 people on top of each other. Just can't do that at this point. Uh, trying to be sensible. So I hope folks will respect that and understand where we're coming from. But, uh, you know, be fired up if you're a Jayhawk fan that's gone to this year in and you're out for 13 years because while we won't have 55 players like we had in 2019, we're going to be more sensible about how many bodies we put in there. Uh, we still got some really good ones. And, and sometimes quality over quantity is the way to go. We got some quality for sure. Uh, Derek Johnson's going to be on the call here on KLWN. We will have TV partners this year with Spectrum and Cox Cable uh, airing it across the state, which is great. But uh, we want to have you there if you can join us. You'll just have to tune in on Monday to find out exactly what that's going to look like. So be on the lookout for that Monday. Again, we will have the call of that game Thursday. Um, as far as we always leading up to this, getting to the fun hypotheticals of, oh, if you could put together a team of the best three-point shooters here, and we obviously got to see that with the shooting for stars last year or whatever we talk about, do you have any idea who the best bowlers of the KU players Man, are? I don't. You know, we, we were joking about this the other time we were together that Julian Wright is one of the more famous KU bowlers of all time. Mm. He used to go to J-Bowl back when you could go to J-Bowl in the day, and, and we would have a ton of fun there. And, uh, and then apparently Chris Tehan this past year, when the team got together for, you know, a lot of times throughout a long season, you try to plan some – extracurricular fun activities to do together and they had a bowling night the whole team and I can't remember what the total was but it was it was something that would blow your mind it was like 260 something so uh so he might be the best redheaded Chris Tehan interesting so actually I, I don't remember the rules on this in the past if you could have active college players or not but I was just wondering with the new NIL stuff that's passed is that an avenue that you guys are, are going to be able to go down? It's a great question, mm-hmm. and and it's one that we've not considered for this year because there's just a it's not, just such a short timeline. It's a short yeah. timeline with NIL just beginning. You know what what day is today? It's been about 15 days yeah. now, and and also even with an opportunity that might come with that, maybe if it got approved, the worst thing for us would be if a current KU player got hurt in an right. exhibition game. You know, and and so we don't want to do that. And uh, so it's probably not anything you're going to see anytime soon. But it's a great question to ask in light of this brave new world we're living in with all these new rules and everything. Uh, this will always be an event that the current players show up at because they want to see the NBA guys and whoever. <laughs> but uh, I don't think I don't think we would ever tell Coach Self we're going to pull so and so from the stands and throw him on the floor because that's a risk nobody's willing to take. Okay, and as far as players, that'll be coming out correct starting today, uh, okay. one a day every day between now and event day. So you'll be about 20 days to get them all in. 
Uh, like I said, it's it's 30 celebrities, so you've got probably eight coaches in there, 22 players. Uh, we will have some KU football flavor, as we always do. We will have some women's basketball flavor, as we always do. Uh, you know, we didn't have a, a female participant the first year we did this game, and somebody came up to me and said, you know, who does my daughter have to identify with if you don't invite a, a female player back? And we've got an illustrious history on that side, too. And so we're in the process of trying to, uh, to, to get the female roster solidify. We usually have one on each side, and we usually have one football player on each side. This year, we might have two football players on each mm. side. We've got at least one from the Orange Bowl team that's never played in the game before and is fired up to do so, and, and maybe a second, so we'll see. But uh, I, I think that makes it fun because this has always been a Harlem Globetrotters feel type game. You know, we're not really playing defense. You know, <laughs> it, it, we want to win on both sides, certainly, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's type of thing where a kid will get pulled out of the stands, as you know, Derek, through a game of knockout, and he'll get to play for a couple of minutes. You'll have a football player trying to guard Ben McLemore, and that's not going to end well. But uh, it's, it's all in the name of a good cause. I'll never forget, we had, a, we had uh, Victor Ortiz, who was, who was the, the middleweight champion of the world, play, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2011 or something. And he's a tiny guy, but I mean, he was the world champion, all right? And he was the guy that boxed in the Jayhawk boxer trunks, if you remember that. Yeah. And, uh, but there's no way he could ever dunk. I mean, he was probably 5'6". So Cole Aldrich picks him up and puts him on his shoulders, and he dunks the basketball. And here's the middleweight or welterweight, whatever it was, champion of the world, sitting on top of the shoulders of an NBA lottery <laughs> pick, slamming the ball home. And it, you know, it's moments like that that, that this pace of play and, and fun night brings you. And we hope for many more like that on August the 5th. Okay, so be on the lookout for all of that, and we'll kind of keep you updated here as well with roster updates and everything else going on there. And uh, we'll have Brian on the show between then and now as well. Uh, Brian, voice of the Jayhawks, thank you for the time. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Cole. See ya. All right, that's Brian Haney, voice of the Jayhawks, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017, 1320, KLWN. Depend on it. Welcome back in Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on KLWN and KLWN.com. I'm Derek Johnson. The basketball tournament started earlier today, and now we're joined by Tim Scarborough, who's going to be on the action. You'll be able to hear him. A lot of the games will be on the ESPN family of networks, whether it's ESPN3, ESPN2, ESPN the regular, I guess. Um, so really exciting, and I always love this event each and every year. And now we are joined by Tim on the show. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Um, what games are you going to be on the call for, and what, what region are uh, you kind of looking forward to, to digging yourself into over this next week yeah. or so? So thanks for having me, Derek. Yeah, so uh, I'm actually lucky enough to be calling two different regions this season. Um, this weekend, I'm in West Virginia uh, calling the Charleston-West Virginia region. Some really good teams there. Uh, the best Virginia team. Uh, which is a West Virginia alumni team. We have 28 alumni teams this year. Um, the uh, Marshall alumni team called Heard That. Uh, West Virginia Heard That will be hosting. Uh, then next weekend I'll be in Peoria, Illinois, uh, where the Always a Brave team, the Bradley alum, will be hosting along with the Peoria All-Stars. So, um, And then after that I'm going to go to Dayton for the Elite Eight. Uh, well, I don't know if we can call it the Elite Eight because that's the NCAA thing, but um, the final eight uh, meet in Dayton to uh, play out the entire tournament to see who wins the $1 million. So I'll be there as well. So you're going to be a busy man. So I guess we'll go ahead and start in that West Virginia regional with that coming up this weekend and you on the call there. 
I, I love the sideline cancer team. I mean, how could you not with what they're playing for? Getting the one seed, but the latest news, Marcus Keene not playing for the team, and that is obviously a very big loss. So do you think they are vulnerable uh, to maybe get picked off by any of the teams at the top half of their region? You know, honestly, Derek, I, I thought they were vulnerable prior to Marcus Keene's announcement that he wasn't going to play. And the reason is, I felt like they were a little overseeded. Now, remember, in the bubble last year, they weren't seated very highly, but they ended up getting to the championship game. And uh, talking to uh, Billy Clapper, their GM, he, he reminded me that they were trailing by double digits in every single game. So they're, they're not a dominant team. Now, they're very good, and they are a tough out. I mean, you know, two years ago in Wichita, they knocked off the uh, aftershock, which was, you know, and again, in Wichita, you, as you know, uh, being in Kansas, the fans love basketball there. So that place was packed. So to win there was special. They ended up uh, going even further last year. But I kind of think they've, they've peaked, so to speak. And losing Marcus Keene, as you mentioned, a 5'9", dynamic point guard, led the country in scoring um, as a senior at Central Michigan. I mean, he's a, he's a tremendous loss for them. But they'll be fine in terms of, being able to replace him, they've, they've uh, added a few roster spots. I like the addition of Terry Larrier, who played at VCU and UConn, um, a big, because that's something that they didn't have much of last year. Uh, they'll, they'll be fine, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a fine line between winning and losing, as you know. So they are extremely vulnerable, but, you know, don't be surprised if they advance. Yeah, we, we saw them up close and personal a couple of years ago in that Wichita Regional. We went down there because they played the self-made Kansas alumni team, which I, I wish Kansas would bring back a rejuvenated alumni team, and maybe we can we can start the bandwagon for that. But they just <laughs> slaughtered them kind of in that game, and it was kind of an eye-opening event of how good guys like Eric Thompson and Jamel Artis and, and so forth were for that team. The team that I really like in this region – I have Best Virginia and Armored Athlete in my in my uh, bracket facing off in that round of eight, and I, I actually kind of think whoever wins the herd that, I think Team DRC could be an underseeded team at 14, former Jayhawk, Tyshawn Taylor on the team. Um, I, I think that that'll be interesting, whoever wins that game, but I really like Best Virginia and Armored Athlete. Do you have somebody else coming out of that region? You know, I think we're on the same page. I am very high on Armored Athlete. Let me tell you how high I am on Armored Athlete. Have them in the championship game on my bracket. And I'm one of the official pickers. Uh, my bracket is published and critiqued <laughs> and um, online. And, and, you know, I get flack, of course, from the GMs and the guys that know me well. Uh, you know, Scar, why didn't you pick us? Why did you pick against us? I'm like, I, I couldn't put everybody in the championship game, fellas. <laughs> it's just not possible. So, uh, but at any rate, yeah, Armour Athlete, I, I love what A.J. Mayhar, the GM, has done. He's kind of retooled his team. But the thing about that team is even though he's got a lot of new players, I think they are, they're improved. I think the caliber of players that he has put on his roster are better than what he has had in the past. So as a result of that, I think they're going to go far. But I also think Best Virginia is a really good team. I did their games in 2019. Of course, they weren't in the bubble last year. But 2019, that that they had a group of guys who had played for Bob Huggins, um, I believe, is a Elite Eight run. So um, yeah, I mean, both those teams I have going very far too. I have that same exact matchup, as a matter of fact. Is there anybody else, any players we should bring up? I know we obviously have Ott Elmore with heard that, um, and his brother <laughs> John Elmore. Any other players or teams that you think could be interesting out of the region? I, I laugh 
because I've known Ot Elmore since he was he and John when they were young players at Marshall. I cover a conference USA. And Ot never played. But now he is a celebrity, if you will, because uh his ability to talk trash is uh second to none in T B T so far. So, uh, yeah, I, Elmore, John Elmore, those guys are hosting uh, along with Best Virginia. I, I like that group. Um, again, probably overseeded a little bit uh, in terms of where they land on the bracket. But, yeah, there, there are a lot of good teams in this, in this tournament. Uh, but some of the teams I'm covering, I really like primetime players. They're a group that, uh, you know, Chris Thomas is their GM. And he runs the ECBL, which is a uh, professional league, semi-pro league, um, you know, around. I guess it's a professional league. They pay him uh, around the East Coast. And uh, they win that thing every year. And he's put together kind of an all-star team to Darius McCollum. Trevor Booker from Clemson is anchoring his back, his uh, front court. So I think they have a chance to kind of make some noise. They're an eight seed, which is kind of unfair to the number one seed having to play them in the second round should they get by Fort Wayne, which is no uh, slouch either. Fort Wayne, the winner of Fort Wayne primetime um, is going to really uh, potentially give sideline cancer, the number one seed, a, a tough battle in that second round. Um, I like those teams for sure. Um, War Tampa, uh, which I guess they call War Ready now, the Auburn team, um, a bunch of the guys that played on their 2019 Final Four team. Bryce Brown can still stroke it. Simeon Bowers. Daniel Purifoy can still stroke it. You know, six seven Purifoy, six seven Bowers, six foot seven TJ Lang, TJ Dunnan, six five. They're long and athletic. They can all handle the ball. They're well coached. Frankie Sullivan, they're, they're, the GM Matt Michella has put together a really nice team. And they're an interesting story too because it's kind of one of those deals where uh, they used to be called Tampa Twenty, as I said, and they were a Tampa based team. And Matt Michello, that GM, was um, just added a couple of Auburn team guys, just just two. And from that, there was such a swelling of uh, fan participation that this season he made it a complete Auburn team, and a hundred percent Auburn team. And uh, I think it's going to pay dividends for them. I, I I think they're in a position to make a good run in this tournament. The winner of that region will play the winner of the Columbus region. To me, this seems like the region where you could convince me that. Like 10 different teams could come out of this. And obviously there's certain teams where maybe I haven't seen certain guys play, so I have no idea. But I, I even go down to like the the 8-9 seed matchup in this matchup. Uh, Men of Mackey against Volunteers from Tennessee. I could see either of those teams making it out of the region. Do you stray anyways away from Carmen's crew here? How do you view the Columbus region? Um, Carmen's crew just... For the record, I'm friends with those guys. I, I love Jared Sellinger, head coach, and probably the best uh, big man they have, but he's not even playing. Um, but it's hard to go against them, isn't it? Because they are going to be playing in Columbus. Having said that, originally I had the volunteers. I really like that team. I like the way they're put together. A lot of uh, really good Tennessee stars led by uh, Chris Lofton. Um, I think they have a chance to get by Carmen's crew in that second round. Uh, But if they don't, I mean, Carmen's crew just has a tough road to me. That Floyd Mayweather team, the the money team, full of pros. I believe they have six NBA guys. Um, And then, you know, Team Hines, uh, led by Kyle Hines, who's one of the most prolific European players of all time, has won uh, maybe almost a dozen 
uh, championships in the EuroLeague. Um, he's getting a little older, and that's really my concern about uh, Carmen's crew, too, to be honest. They're a little older as well. Um, they added um, Wesson uh, in the middle, who's a young – Caleb is, is a young center. But other than that, you know, they're still playing with, with uh, <laughs> you know, Aaron Kraft and David Lighting. Some of those guys are, are getting a little older now. So I don't know how far the crew can go, but they will have that crowd behind them. But I actually have Hines now that uh, Nick Kalafis – who was playing with the Greek national team, uh, they they got eliminated from the Olympics. So Nicolaitis, one of the most prolific shooters out of Florida, is playing with them again. So I have Hines going to my Final Four as a result of just adding him back into the roster. Uh, they do miss Mike James, who, of course, played in the playoffs and, uh, and really kind of finished mm-hmm. the season with the Brooklyn Nets. Um, they miss him, but I still think they got enough to kind of make a run through. But again, they play the Floyd Mayweather TMT team in the second round, so you just never know. Yeah, I kind of think this is the toughest region to pick, and I, I think it might be just the toughest region in general. Even when you look at the bottom, Red Scare, Zip Em Up, like there are some really good teams all throughout this region. Oh, uh, what that about that Zip Em Up team? Wow, that Zip Em Up team is really good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Up on the other side of the bracket in the Wichita region here in the state of Kansas. Eberlein Drive is a team who we've seen go from the beginnings of the TBT and work their way up, and now they're just kind of a consistent winner in this event. The team that I actually picked out of this in my bracket is the LA Cheaters. I love their guards with the wares kind of in charge there, but I also love Team Challenge ALS in this thing as well. How do you kind of peg, uh, I guess, what teams you think could make a run out of the Wichita region? So you mentioned Columbus as a tough region. I I personally feel like Wichita is the toughest region, at least from the top six or so. Um, you mentioned Everline Drive, a former uh, runner-up. They've retooled. Um, they have a really good squad. They picked up Jerome Randall. Um, actually, I think they lost Jerome Randall to um, to to ALS, but they still have a lot of NBA caliber players. Um, that Florida TNT team, uh, the GM Terry Hughes and I talk all the time. He, for the last, really since 2019, man, he's been chomping at the bit for this very moment. And, and they get to throw it up in Wichita this weekend um, to see, kind of put his money where his mouth is. But they feel like they have a chance to win not just that region, but the entire thing. And as a five seed, they very well could. Uh, but you mentioned the cheaters, Derek Williams, former Arizona star, playing with that team. Um, and Casper Ware, man, that is going to be tough. And the Cheaters, you know, they kind of had a bad showing. Uh, you know, of course, there are pro teams out of the Drew League in L.A. A lot of uh, NBA guys play in that Drew League. So they put together a nice all-star team. Uh, they play TNT in the second round potentially. So the winner of that has a chance to, to win that region. But I'm sticking with uh, the number one seed. I'm going chalk on there. This is the Rock Chalk show, right? <laughs> yes. I'm going, I'm going chalk. I'm going chalk in uh, in Wichita, chalk in Kansas. Love so it. that's appropriate. All right. So the last region that leaves us then is the Illinois region. Uh, the matchup I'm most excited about, and I would have been curious if Bayheim's Army would have had DJ Kennedy on their roster before the seeding process was done. I'd imagine they would have been higher than a three seed. Probably going to be a two seed because you're not going to put them ahead of the defending champ Golden Eagles. But that right. possible. 16 matchup between House of Pain and Bayheim's Army. If that works out, that could be absolutely phenomenal. That's kind of the one I'm circling the most in this region. 
Oh man, that's a that's a good call out right there, honestly, Derek. Because that House of Pain team was really good, and ironically led by uh, Mike uh, Mike Dom, who played um, mid major basketball, but he's close to I think he scored three thousand points in college. Mm-hmm. It was ridiculous, and he uh, was really good for them last year in the bubble. Um, I think they have a pretty decent path to play that game. Um, both those teams should be able to get through the, the teams in their way. Uh, that's a that's a really good call out. Uh, ultimately, though, again, the one seed, um, Golden Eagles and Bayheim's Army will probably meet in the regional final. Um, some good teams there. Brotherly Love, a team out of Philadelphia, where I'm from uh, originally, um, always a tough out. Um, always us, the um, the Oregon alum team, the alumni team. They have a lot of good players. So, you know, there's some teams that could bubble up. But to me, that's the top heavy, the top two teams in that region uh, will probably advance. And, and you know, that Bayheim's Army team, I call them Bayheim's Overseas Elite Army now because <laughs> they did add DJ Kennedy and DeAndre Kane as well. Um, there may be some, uh, some dollar signs that uh, – dollar incentives that got some of these guys on their team. They also picked up Tyrese Wrights, I believe, too. Um, so – yeah, look for look for that Bayon's Army team to roll. And in fact, on my bracket, I have Bayon's Army team not losing a game. They're going to win it all. Yeah, and uh, I love this event every year. I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. I'm excited as it continues to grow each and every year, too. I'm curious, too, with what happens with all this NIL stuff going on, if eventually there will be an avenue for even current college players to play in this event and take the award. I'm, I'm not sure how that would all work, but I think that would be yes, kind of cool eventually. Actually, uh, this year, um, I believe there are two. I don't have the names, but I know there was some some talk about a couple of actual current college players uh, playing. And, of course, you know, we have to step lightly in, in terms of um, how TBT promotes them. But as a media person, if they're part of the story, we can certainly talk about them. So, uh, but, yeah, that, that is an interesting development. Expect to see more current college players start to play at TBT in years to come. So I'm excited about that. That's awesome. He is Tim Scarborough. You'll be able to hear him on the call as soon as this weekend in some awesome TBT games. Tim, thank you so much for your time, and uh, good luck this weekend. Absolutely. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for having me, buddy. All right, that's Tim Scarborough, who covers college basketball. He's an analyst there, but also on the basketball tournament. And you can hear him on the calls. He's on ESPN2 tomorrow for one of those games and. He'll be on a ton of games that you'll be hearing over the course if you're watching and listening to the action of the basketball tournament. I'm super excited for this. I Last year, they had lines uh, with like Vegas betting for the different TBT games. And it was, it was a pretty profitable endeavor, I guess one could say. I ended up going 20-11 and 11 on my TBT bets that I was giving out to people last year. So hopefully, I haven't seen any lines yet. They might be waiting for some more data to accrue. Maybe they'll start doing it in the round of 16 or something like that. But if we have that, we'll try to get some bets out. Maybe I just jinx myself, and that means I'm going to suck this year. But who knows? Maybe we can be a little uh, profitable this year as well. Tim Scarborough joining us here on RCST. Coming up in a little bit, Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back, the Jayhawk Radio Network, going to join us to talk a little KU football. I'm Derek Johnson. This is RCST. Welcome back. Rock Chalk Sports Talk here, FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson, joined now by Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back 
and now sideline analyst and also does pregame stuff like that on the Jayhawk radio network. Uh, speaking of the Orange Bowl, BMAC, I, I saw your post about making fullbacks great again. And, and what stood out to me was just every time I see those red Orange Bowl jerseys with the blue helmets that just have the, the K and the U on the helmet. Those are my favorite KU football jerseys ever. Those are my favorite KU football helmets ever. I don't know if it's a nostalgia thing of correlating it with success, but who do we need to talk to here about bringing back that helmet and donning those jerseys more regularly moving forward? You know, I, I, I did love the red jerseys, and I do miss, like, the block numbers. It feels like our numbers are so thin on the jerseys now that it's, you know, it's a little bit harder to see. Helmet-wise, I've loved a lot of the helmet variations, but uh, I will say that that traditional blue uh, with the gray face mask has been awesome. I'll also say when I was a kid, I liked the blue face masks with the blue helmets and the red block KU uh, from the late 90s, which I was a big fan of. So um, I'm kind of torn, but I do miss those, and it'd be cool if they brought them back. Yeah, I like all those as well. I, I do like some of the new ones, like the, I think it was the World War II ones, something like that, where they had the World War II Jayhawk on there, and they made it kind of mm-hmm. look like an Air Force type of plane-looking thing. I thought those were really sharp as well, but I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just whatever you grow up with, that's what you like the most, or if it's just, because in my mind, like those are my favorite ones. Yeah, my best uniform idea is there should be a, there should be a one-week, like a Legends week, uh, that Kansas wears those powder blue jerseys, you know, just to, just to celebrate some John Hadle, uh the Lawrence great. But it'd be cool if they could just do a Legends jersey week and always it was those powder blues, either white or blue, whatever. Those were awesome. I love that idea. Hopefully, uh, maybe they'll, they'll think about doing something like that. Um, yesterday was Big 12 Media Days. Lance Leipold, one of the key things that he talked about throughout the different conversations and questions was just the importance of consistency and what that means beyond just what you're doing every day and and doing it the same, but also from a coaching staff standpoint and having the same guys in place. And he mentioned one comment about certain guys having three or four different position coaches over the course of their time at KU. How many different running back coaches did you have in your time at KU? So I had three, and it is common, you know, during your career to have mobility within those positions. I don't think that's an uncommon thing. The difference is that the structure of the program I played for never changed. Um, So coordinator-wise, we had one coordinator change. Obviously, I had Mangino my whole career. Uh, Deep as a coordinator never changed. So I think it's more about the overall stability. Because one of the things he keeps saying is, I want people that want to be here. That's what he always says when he brings up Emmett Jones. I want people that want to be here long term. So for him, I think it's a matter of, look, we've had, I've had consistency my whole career coaching these programs, and the, this is the opposite of that. I mean, this is a program that hasn't had any stability. Uh, my little cousin is a walk-on of O-lineman. He's had three position coaches since he got on campus. Um, and that's like, in a, excuse me, he's had four. He had an interim. So he's had four in one year. Um, so that means that our current O-line <laughs> has had, I don't know, five, six coaches um, in their career. You look at somebody like Chris Hughes, the number might be seven or eight. Um, so that that is damaging because, like, you can't learn about a system or a way of coaching or a style or to pick up on these little, 
you know, individual things that a coach might be able to enhance in you, you don't really have the time to spend to develop those things. So it's really, really important. Yeah, I guess the the comparison I made yesterday, I was like, it's like if you go to the dentist and one time you're there and you're saying, oh, I'm having trouble flossing. And they say, well, maybe you should go get the floss picks. And then the next time you're there, they go, well, actually, those don't work anymore. Maybe you should use the regular floss. And then you go a third time and they say, well, that doesn't work either. You have to use this other thing altogether. You're just going to be kind of confused on what to do. And it's not necessarily that each different coach isn't knowledgeable and doesn't have good things to teach you. It's just that I feel like the biggest thing is you have to be on one united goal and whatever the idea is for that coaching staff, for the head coach on down, whatever you want to do schematically, I feel like that's probably the biggest issue with trying to have that consistency of just trying to be all on the same page of this is what we want to do and we want to do it for each and every year we're here, regardless of who's coaching them. And yeah, that's just the stability of the player coach relationship. What about the coach coach relationship? How can a how can a coach completely execute the vision of the head coach if it's a revolving door? You know, especially with something like I mean, we mentioned offensive line first, but that's like that's like the that's like the base of what you want to be on offense is offensive line play. So you got to understand schematics, you got to understand technique. You've got to understand the different styles and how they fit together. It's just like a lot of moving parts. So if those things are constantly changing, no one's comfortable. There's no general understanding. There, There is no, like, principle-based teaching. And I think that's one of the standout points with these guys is when you talk to them, they are almost always talking about principles, teaching principles, uh, developmental principles, strength staff principles player enrichment principles. They are very principle-based teachers, and I think that's what you need. You need stability to teach principles. We're talking with Brandon McAnderson here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I, I do want to start previewing some of the positions for this team as we get closer to the season. I figured might as well start at your home base with running backs this week. How, how strong of a room is this overall for KU with uh, a bunch of the different guys they have in the running back position? I think it's a literal strong position and a figurative strong position. But the guy that always stood out last year um, in the beginning to me was Hyshaw. Just because he, I'm telling you, true freshmen don't look like him. <laughs> I'm like, I know when I was a true freshman, I had about seven muscles total. You know, this guy's <laughs> got about 20 in his upper body. You know, this guy is a, is a rock, strong guy. And I think what I like about him the most, him and Petsy Hickson, who, you know, we got a later introduction to him, um, but he was excellent too. And I think those two are star, star players. And I say that because they're big guys. They're big physical guys. You know, high is a little shorter, but don't get it. Don't confuse short and small. The guy's short. He's not small. And Petsy Hickson's running about 230 and jumping over people. So these guys are physical downhill runners that can also be home run hitters. Um, and then when you're big and strong like that, pass protection is not a big deal. You can step up and fill a gap and block a linebacker. Um, so I think it just gives them overall versatility at that in that room. And that's before talking about a guy like Devin Neal, who I think is the kind of guy that is a game breaker. And it'll be easy to incorporate his, you know, three, four, six touches because, you know, you're not looking for an every down back when you have a room with that much strength. You're just looking to ride the hot hand. Yeah, and I guess that was going to be my next question. Do you think this is going to be anybody emerging from the pack to maybe get 
15, 20 carries a game, or do you kind of envision it as being just a bunch of guys kind of filling into specific plays depending on what their strong suit is, and maybe they each end up with somewhere around 5 to 10 carries a game? Yeah, I think it's more of a hot hand thing, and I think that they will – I think there will be games where you'll see stylistically a guy will be a better fit for that particular game plan. But I think that that outside, that outside zone is going to benefit Pesic Hickson the most because he is a true slasher type running back to where I feel like um, I look at Highshaw more of a downhill runner. He has some of that ability, but Pesic Hickson being a one slash, a one cut slash runner is perfect for his own scheme. So I think he'll benefit a lot. And then you'll have, you know, change of pace guys like Belton Gardner we didn't even bring up, you know, a guy they might use in the pass game, a guy they might use on the edge, a guy with a ton of elusiveness who, you know, I, it's, it's not saying much because the O-line played so poorly, but honestly played a little bit, was a little bit more productive than Puka last year with some really tough circumstances. So that gives you an idea of how skilled of a runner he is. So you've got a room that's going to be loaded, and I think, they aren't going to be looking for one guy to take over. They're going to be using guys as they see fit. They'll have a fresh guy to throw out there at all times. You mentioned the offensive line, and I know you've been pretty bullish on how improved they could be. I just saw Mike Nowitzki was ranked as the like number 41 center by 24-7 sports, or not 41 center, the number 41 transfer of any player transferring this offseason coming over. How much do you think that is going to help the running game? I think it's going to help a lot. I, I think those guys are going to benefit from like almost a shared continuity. I think it's one thing to say we're going to teach a new system, we're going to teach a new technique, we're going to teach new general principles. It's one thing to do that without any incoming players. It's another thing to do it with having two guys that have been in the system, especially when one of those guys plays center, because a lot of the communications on the offensive line are made by centers. It's kind of the quarterback of the position. So more than just being able to identify, uh, which Nowitzki will help not only the rest of the O-linemen, but it will also help the quarterbacks. And the other thing is he's just a good player. Like if you watch Buffalo play and you watch them run the football and you watch his impact on a given run play, it's massive. The guy can really, really move for a tall guy. Uh, usually you don't have tall guys playing inside, playing center. Um, him being six five and being able to have the mobility to get to the next level, you know, to push tackles by and open up big holes. I think he has the skills that you would want and the experience you would want. You mentioned some outside runs and like a zone running scheme. Is that different than what KU has been doing in the past? Not different. I think it's just more heavily principled on it. And what I'll say about it is when you watch this staff, even going back to their D3 days, it's the baseline for what they did. Now, if they had a quarterback that was, you know, lights out, they threw the ball a little bit more. If they had a running back that ran the ball well, they, they ran the ball more. But I think what you saw carry over to every version of the team was a team that could really, really block the schemes. And while I, why that's important is because a lot of times when I watched KU's offensive lineman last year, it wasn't a matter of ability. It was more of a matter of not having a good understanding of what they were supposed to be doing. And that's a big deal because offensive linemen, it's a five-person unit. It's a five person unit. So, like, continuity is important. 
Uh, teamwork's important. Everybody pulling in the same direction. All those cliches, those all really matter when you play offensive line. And if you watch some of the head positions and if you watch some of the angles the guys were taking, I'm not sure that they knew what they were supposed to be doing. And it's not complicated, but that's why you practice so much. You practice so much so that your communication, your reaction time is second nature. So you're worried about the physicality part because there's no thinking in running my track, making sure I have the right technique, making sure I'm working to the right person. All those things are repetition-based. And not having that continuity and consistency at that position, not having that continuity and consistency at the offensive coordinator position even, um, really showed through uh, with, with that previous regime. Talking with Brandon McAnderson, uh, before I let you go, do you think the finals has turned on its head now that the Bucks have won the last two? Should they be the favorites the rest of the way, or are you still uh, kind of leaning Suns? I think it's a, I think it's a coin flip. I think the interesting part about it is that the two games that the Suns won, the Suns won, and there were these huge outlier statistics. You know, like the first game, the Suns were like plus 15 at the free throw line. The second game, uh, the Suns were plus 16 made threes at the three-point line and only won by eight. So then I thought, okay, this series is closer than the final scores with just. So then, you know, Giannis has a monster game, and they win uh, big in game three. Game four, there's all these huge stat outliers, and they're all in favor of the Bucks now. So where the, the, the Suns are the first team to lose a game, shooting over 50%, and their opponent under 42%. That was massive. Then you move on to, uh, I think it was 15 to 0 in fast break points for the Bucks over the Suns. And then the obvious one, which was the plus, what was it, 17 turnovers for the Suns and five for the Bucks, which was their fewest, you know, this playoffs. So there's all these stat outliers that make this such an intriguing matchup. Like the games haven't been very super close at the end except for the last game but they've all been pretty fun because there's all these things happening that are like just fun to follow like will you know will Giannis be dominant score 40 will you know DeAndre Aiden come out and look like David Robinson Ewing Elijah on in the first 20 minutes like he he did in game three (laughs) you know will Chris Paul be the ultimate you know 36 year old guard wizard you know, Booker went full Andrew Tony, uh, you know, hitting every shot imaginable. So, I mean, there's just these little things that are happening that are providing the entertainment value, which is kind of different than what we usually get in the NBA Finals. We usually get stars being stars. It feels like this series has just been like a, I mean, it's been a pick your poison, super fun, what's going to happen this game kind of thing. So I, I've been all in. He is Brandon McAnderson. Former Jayhawk, Orange Bowl winning running back. You can hear him on the call. We're getting closer to football season. You'll be able to hear him on the broadcasts here on KLWN for the Jayhawk Radio Network. BMAC, thank you so much for your time, and have a good rest of your weekend. All right, thanks for having me, bro. All right, that was Brandon McAnderson joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, as he does every Friday. FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, depending on it.